on. I'm on Good evening and welcome to the best of Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Peter Champelli, and thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, we bring you the best five stories from this fall. We'll have stories about local issues, like discrimination on college campuses, to national issues, like the protest by supporters of net neutrality. We'll also have lighthearted stories like our feature on cab drivers in Ithaca, where two correspondents hopped in the car with four Ithaca dispatch drivers. But first, we bring you a story from this September. Cornell University found itself stuck in the middle of one of the nation's most hotly contested political issues after members of Zeta Psi fraternity chanted inflammatory remarks towards the school's Latino Living Center. The issue of discrimination on Cornell's campus continued when a hate crime took place the next week. WICB correspondent Christopher Morales brings us the first story in our three-part series on discrimination on Cornell's campus. Throughout his campaign and his time in office, President Donald Trump has rallied supporters with strong and targeted messages towards different groups, including immigrants, labeling them as criminals, calling for mass deportations, and promising to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. This pattern in Trump's presidency culminated on September 5th, when Jeff Sessions announced the end of the DACA program. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, was introduced by President Obama through an executive order that allowed immigrants, often referred to as dreamers, who were brought as children to apply for temporary permits to work and study legally in the United States. Congress has six months to settle the fate of these dreamers, but local Ithaca supporters are calling for action sooner than later to help our dreamers. Although support can go a long way, so can the opposition. Shortly past midnight on September 6th, a chant was heard from the ZSI fraternity house. The chant was, let's build a wall around the LLC. The LLC is the Latino Living Center, and Arki Asmal, co-chair from La Asociación Latina, or LAL, was one of the first to hear what happened. And I was there, um, I was conversing with some other people from the community, and she comes in with this huge concern, and DACA just happened, we thought at least even those that were conservative would have some sensitivity, right? That sort of rhetoric being shared, like, right at that moment, like, we all just, immediately, we just, just kind of laughed it off a little bit, like, um, thinking it was a joke, but then, like, we saw, like, the seriousness in her face that this actually happened. The LAL reached out to ZSI fraternity, the Interfraternity Council at Cornell, and Cornell administrators for answers. So I'm emailed with the help of one of my other community uh, members, Zeta Sai, which is the fraternity that we heard this from, um, president directly, asking him if they did this, why they did this, is it okay for them to do this, you know, like we wanted a response. No one was responding. At first, Zeta Sai reported to Interfraternity Council advisors that nothing had happened. But at the same time, a member of Zeta Sai was texting a member of LLC and said that ZSI confessed to the chant while at an internal brother meeting. Once ZSI heard that the word was out, they admitted to their actions and said they would release a formal apology. Arky and the LAL waited for an apology, but when nothing came, they knew they had to come out public with this. They told us that there was going to be an apology sent after that meeting within two hours. Now that meeting was held at around maybe five to six, so we were expecting an apology letter by like eight. Nine. They were not able to respond to us after a solid 24 hours. Like, the apology never came, and we started writing a statement at 9. When LAL posted their statement on Facebook, they finally received the apology from Sai. The fraternity said that only one member was taking responsibility for the chant, 
and Arky was not pleased. The apology was very problematic. The apology was trying to justify the fact that he was Hispanic, that apparently he had roots that were Latino, and therefore it was somewhat okay for him to say something like this. And he also reiterated that he didn't mean it like seriously, it was a joke. Howard's Trump himself. This apology was not enough. Members and allies of the Latinx community appeared at a student assembly meeting the next day, September 7th. Cornell student Irving Torres was the first to speak to the student assembly. So essay, I come to you as those who are elected to represent the student body. What are you going to do and what are you going to say? Student assembly representative Joseph Anderson was most appalled. So many people at, at this school have been angry for so long and we just ignored it. There's no ignoring it anymore. It's here, it's been at our doorstep for a while, and we've just been putting it off. Now is the time to finally act. I'm sick of it. After multiple representatives spoke, all voicing concerns and condemning the act, Cornell President Martha Pollack and Vice President for Student and Campus Life Ryan Lombardi arrived to the meeting. I took the mic and asked President Pollack a question. And I know that La Asociación Latina Executive Board, in their ending of their statement, left a specific list of demands that Black Students United also reinforce. But my direct question to you, President Pollack, and to the Cornell administration is, have you looked at these demands? Will you respond to them, and how soon? The answer to your question is, uh, yes, I received the list. I heard about the episode very late last night. Um, I was at Cal's all morning. I was in close contact with Vice President Lombardi as he was crafting his message, and we were texting back and forth. Um, I don't have a response for you today. I need time. We're still gathering facts. We're still gathering information. We will respond, but I'm not prepared to respond today. But I wanted a more concrete answer, so I reached out to President Pollack again the following week. According to her media relations office, she declined to comment and referred back to Vice President Lombardi's previous statement. His statement was criticized by one student assembly representative because he defended the chant under the rights of open expression. This was similar to what Arkey and the LEL board heard behind closed doors where President Pollack said to them directly she will not respond to their demands. She had this meeting with us in our, our sort of like obviously event because she had already known by then because um, Lombardi had already released a statement and everyone, like, everyone kind of already knew what happened. Um, spilled over in that meeting um, for a couple of, couple of minutes. And the conclusion was, quote unquote her words, I cannot take action against that rhetoric because it is not classified as hate speech. Um, according to the US government, hate speech is considered when it's targeted at an individual. However, hate speech is not when that language is targeted at a group. Regardless of whether that's hate speech or not, that's still vulgar and hateful rhetoric. And that should not be allowed because that dehumanizes not only an individual, but a community. In the list of demands, LEL also called for ZSI to undergo greater emphasis on diversity training. ZSI members declined to comment for this story. While this may put a sudden rest to this particular incident, the LEL members and allies of the Latinx community know they will continue to fight these incidents of discrimination, to fight for dreamers, and continue to press the Cornell administration to take action against these acts, like a racist chant from a fraternity. If I don't feel safe in this community, I have to spend another four years here, and I don't feel safe. I chose Cornell for diversity and inclusion. That's why I'm here, because I heard that you guys were diverse and inclusive, and you have not shown me that. Show me that you're diverse and you're inclusive. For WICB News, I'm Christopher Morales.
In October, a complicated turn of events led to Tompkins County's Office of Human Rights temporarily losing their director. Karen Bear was placed on unpaid leave for unclear reasons, and members of the community responded. Now, three months later, the claims are that Bear acted in insubordination to the county, and there is currently a hearing to decide whether Bear will keep her job. But after Bear was initially placed on leave, WICB correspondents Hannah Bracinger and Bronte Cook took an in-depth look into the situation. Let's start with comments, if we may. Uh, if I should mispronounce anyone's name, please correct me when you get the microphone. It's not intentional. On Monday night, dozens of concerned Tompkins County residents filed into the legislative chambers at the Tompkins County Legislature Building. They all just had one goal in mind, to speak out for the Tompkins County Office of Human Rights and its director, Karen Bear. Bear is the only person of color serving as department head in the county. She was recently placed on unpaid leave under unclear and unexplained circumstances. Let's back up. Ithaca's Showing Up for Racial Justice, better known as Surge, says that on October 13th, Bear was, quote, abruptly taken out of her office by county human resources employees who did not know why she was being removed, only that they were, quote, just following orders. After being questioned by the Ithaca Voice, county officials refused to explain the situation, citing their inability to discuss personnel matters. Here's what we know. In 2015, Barron made claims of discrimination against Tompkins County. The legislators' negative response to this claim provided the basis to her second claim, that legislators engaged in a, quote, pattern of retribution and exclusion and a pattern of systematic and institutional discrimination against women and people of color. Attorney Timothy Taylor was hired to investigate Bear's most recent claims against the county, and he said after reaching out to Bear, she refused to cooperate in the investigation. However, Bear's own attorney claims that Bear never received information from Taylor regarding the process and procedure of the investigation. We also know that just two weeks prior to being placed on leave, Bear published an opinion piece in the Ithaca Voice. In the article, she voiced that the Office of Human Rights has struggled to gain support from Tompkins County officials. In this article, Bear included statements actually made by people in positions of power in Tompkins County regarding the Office of Human Rights. These statements include, quote, the system isn't broken so we don't need to fix it, and quote, I don't feel too comfortable with the Human Rights Commission people being involved. In the article, Bear also emphasized that, now more than ever, we need to fight for human rights and work for systematic changes. While Bear says she feels as though her demands for justice may have triggered her removal, the county assures this had nothing to do with her termination. Regardless, her article and her removal from her position raised a crucial question within the community. Is the Office of Human Rights failing to receive adequate support from the city of Ithaca? Many residents seem to think so, but the Tompkins County Legislature is denying these claims. At the Monday night legislative meeting, a council member made the following statement in response to the unusual amount of community members packed into the room. Uh, for those of you who are here to discuss the county's commitment to the Office of Human Rights, uh, I want to provide some clarity and assurance. Uh, the speaker went on to state various statistics that showcase the county's support for the Office of Human Rights. For example, Tompkins County is one of 13 out of 57 counties outside of New York City to fund a human rights office at all. In addition, the department has received the exact budget amount that it requested. The legislature claimed that Tompkins County is, and will continue to be, the most generous county in New York State in terms of human rights office funding. The bottom line is, 
is that we're, while they're measured by budget or staffing level, we stand head and shoulders above any other county in New York State. In but various community members don't agree that these statistics truly prove that the county fully supports the Human Rights Office and its initiatives. The, the numbers that you just gave are it's fantastic. The statistics are great, but it doesn't mean anything if a person who is leading the agency is not, is not willing or seems to represent the community that has come to them. That was Debron Hagelin, an Ithaca resident who says the Human Rights Office provided him support after he faced housing discrimination in the county. Debron says that while these statistics are important, having a person of color in the office was equally vital to the success of the department. A lot of times these agencies are headed by Caucasian white males or, or, or white females, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's very uncomfortable sometimes to have uh, someone, a Caucasian person at the head of the realm to talk about discrimination issue. It was very comforting to have Ms. Bears and Xavier there. I think that's very important to have a person of color in that leadership role. So I'm here in support of Mrs. Bears and the Human Rights. Tompkins County resident Liz Brundage teared up as she shared her hopes that the county remains a community that fights for and prioritizes human rights. Karen has been an inspiring guest lecturer for my students. I've observed how deeply she's committed to addressing discrimination on the basis of race, disability, sexual orientation, and all other prohibited grounds. How she empowers her staff and how she energizes community members. These values of human dignity and equality that are embodied by the Office of Human Rights by the county's stated commitment to diversity through inclusion, and by my own experience in collaboration with Karen and her staff, are honestly one of the main reasons that I moved into the county after my daughter was born. More than anything in these divisive and violent times, I want my daughter to be able to grow up in a community that courageously confronts the problems it faces and that's committed to making human rights a reality for all of its members. Among those in public support of the Office of Human Rights is Surge, who publicly shared their concern as a human rights organization about the removal of Bear from her position. Kay Cardona, a Surge representative, shared the group's public statement at the Monday meeting. So while there are pieces of the story that we don't know, we do know the following. This is not the first time that the county legislature has attempted to weaken the OHR. Very few people know the actual reason for Karen's termination. Karen was the only person of color who served as a department head and took a courageous risk by speaking out about the legislature's lack of adequate action around local human rights issues. History has shown time and time again that when people of color, and particularly women of color, speak truth to power, their voices are shut down and they often face dire consequences. And, last but not least... My name is Karen Baer, and I live in the town of Ithaca. Bear herself denies the allegations that have been made against her and plans to fight the charges legally. At Monday's meeting, she made a powerful statement drawing comparisons between her African ancestors who faced oppression in America for centuries and the obstacles she, herself, is facing as a woman of color today. I tell you this story because it is also my story. In September of 2013, I came to Tompkins County after being given the opportunity to be the Director of Human Rights. Doing human rights work has been my life, and I have done it well. And nothing that is said by others behind closed doors to besperge my character or question my abilities changes that. And I believe that my efforts 
and the work of the Office of Human Rights will live on regardless of the systemic attempts to render OHR staff and their work invisible. And I dare say as I look around the room that there are many similar stories to be told. But I am standing here to tell you that the absence of opportunities for persons of color is no coincidence. Disenfranchisement is not the result of uncontrolled variables or non-diverse applicant tools or happenstance. It is the result of deliberate and orchestrated strategies executed by people in power, whether they be historical or happening in real time. Strategies intended to exclude, oppress, and disappear people of color. My story and those of my ancestors are not isolated ones. In many ways, it has become the never-ending story of racism in America. And I Bear went on to discuss an incident that she feels illustrates the county's lack of support towards the Office of Human Rights. In the recalled incident, Bear stated that, at a previous legislation meeting back in May, her and her co-worker presented multiple LGBTQ initiatives they had made to the legislature. When she later looked up the officially approved minutes for the meeting on the county's website, however, the presentation nor her own presence at the meeting was ever even acknowledged. And as long as others stay silent, these strategies of oppression succeed. And yes, I'm standing here because I need my job back and I desire to be reunited with my staff. But I also ask that you help me press for real change in how we address complaints of discrimination and how we protect people who give voice to them. Retaliation is not an option. We must do better, and my hope in the end is that we reach consensus about increasingly, the increasingly vital role that human rights protections play, not only for persons of color, but for everyone in this county. And that we, as a community, meet one necessary condition. Sustained grassroots support for human rights promotion and protection and a government that is responsive to the voices of the people. Karen Bear's leave is in effect for 30 days until the county decides whether or not she will be officially terminated. While her path to resuming her position as Director of Human Rights may be an uphill battle, she has the support of Surge and other Ithaca groups every step of the way. For Bronte Cook, I'm Hannah Bracinger, WICB News. Decarcerate Tompkins County is a group in Ithaca that fights for the rights of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals. In November, WICB correspondents Bridget Bright and Taylor Milliken talked with people involved in this organization. Yeah, that's just one little small thing that makes you feel like you don't feel human anymore. And how is that supposed to help us help our society in, at all? The people you are listening to are Lily Gershon and Galvin Lawson with Decarcerate Tompkins County. These people are dealing with issues that aren't talked about that much in the mainstream media. They say that people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated are struggling to even feel human while facing their situation. Decarcerate Tompkins was formed to create a positive change for those people. And so far, they've been successful. In 2017, county government wanted to expand the Tompkins County Jail, but Decarcerate Tompkins County campaigned against this expansion and eventually stopped these plans. Our main goal at the time was to stop the expansion of the Tompkins County Jail, which was on the table because uh, the SCOC was saying that we needed a bigger jail. 
in Tompkins County. Despite the fact that crime levels were going down and um, and that we wanted to have more alternative alternatives to incarceration. That was Lily Gershon, a member of Decarcerate Tompkins. She says she wants to understand and help resolve problems that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people in Ithaca face. Even though it feels like progress, a lot of us believe that uh, real progress is going to come from grassroots, so from, from making relationships and talking to and hearing, more importantly, people who are actually directly affected. Decarcerate Tompkins got a lot of momentum from accomplishing their initial goal, but that was only on the organizational level. These issues with incarceration affect real people's lives, and not just when they're in jail. To try to understand this more, we talked with Galvin Lawson, he is dealing with the unexpected struggles that go along with being formerly incarcerated. And he gave us an honest look at what he and people like him deal with every day. It's mostly homelessness. Um, that's that's overwhelming in this in this town because the percentage of homelessness in Ithaca is way higher than the percentage of homelessness in Syracuse, New York. And Syracuse, New York is such a bigger town. Galvin says when he got out of jail, he wasn't given anything besides housing from the Department of Social Services. But he says that although the housing is intended to be helpful, it isn't for many. You know what I'm saying? You got blood everywhere. You got feces. You got, you got people having sex right in front of your face and stuff like that. I don't want to see that stuff. I don't want to go through that stuff. So I want to have something that's at least a little clean so I can be able to wash my body up. I can't wash my body inside somewhere where it's this black mold inside the, the bathtub and you know, you know what I'm saying? It just, it just disgusts me to even go in the bathroom. You got to hover because you don't want to touch nothing. You know, I just want to live a regular life. You have just the basic thing. This was only one instance of these issues that Galvin mentioned. The quality of the house was so bad that Galvin moved to the streets. He said being homeless was better than living in the county-provided housing. We reached out to the Department of Social Services, and we will follow up with their response. Just, just with just the basic things. I just want to lay. I want to, want to be able to lay in my bed and mind turn the channel on the TV or something. You know, I don't got none of those luxuries. It's really hard. Both Lily and Gavin said that the conditions in those environments only perpetuate criminal activity, and it restricts people from having a normal life after incarceration. They mentioned that there are many programs that are set up in Ithaca to help the formerly incarcerated beyond housing. But Galvin says that they are not helpful for everyone. Plus, there's no help. They got all these programs out here and not really helping people out like that. I mean, they're helping certain people like the mental health people or people that's having drug problems and stuff like that. But people don't have those type of problems. What about those type of people? Yeah. And the segregation of assistance is just one observation. So suppose you had a drug problem. You want to be clean. You go to a place where you're supposed to get help. And all around that place, the people who are hanging out there are people who are offering you the drug that you're trying to avoid. And it's become so much harder. It's just like you're trying to be vegetarian and the only thing you've got is a buffet full of meat all around you and you're supposed to resist that. So it's very difficult when we want to take uh, people who are struggling and we want to push them into a corner somewhere where that's the area where they go. By listening to experiences like Galvin's, 
Decarcerate Tompkins County is reevaluating their mission in order to create a new goal that will help the most people. For example, right now, um, one thing we're pushing for, which I do think is a good thing, it's called the LEAD program. And it's a program that to be an alternative to jail so that a police officer, uh, when there's a situation, can, instead of sending someone to jail, can, can look at this person and say, oh, you're a good candidate for this other program that will keep you out of jail. And beyond this structural change, Decarcerate Tompkins is making change on a more personal level. Members of the group work at the Multicultural Resource Center in Ithaca with people like Galvin. The people that work here make food in their own kitchen with their own ingredients and their own food from their pocket and bring it here so a person like me can have a meal, at least one meal a day, you know what I mean? That, I mean, that's good, man. That makes me feel... Make me feel wanting, make me feel like a person, you know what I'm saying? Not like an animal no more. Decarcerate Tompkins is an example of a local group looking to change the structural systems that are affecting the people of Ithaca. And by working with other nonprofits, like the Multicultural Resource Center, the group is focusing more and more on their goals for the future. For contributing reporter Taylor Milliken, I'm Bridget Bright, WICB News. Most of us are familiar with the bright yellow cars that take us from point A to point B, but what about the drivers behind the wheel? In early December, WICB correspondents Madison Fernandez and Sarah Horbakowitz took a ride with four different Ithaca dispatch drivers and asked them some questions along the way. Some people put value in what kind of car they drive, like a Ferrari or a Porsche. But we spoke to some who put value in who they're driving, so much so that they've dedicated their whole career to it. Car 10. This week, we went along for the ride with four different Ithaca dispatch taxi drivers. They've spent their career gathering years of wisdom and a lifetime of stories from different people who've hopped in their bright-colored minivan. One driver we rode with was Margaret, who's been driving for a bit over a year now. I started driving a month after I graduated because I needed a job yesterday. And uh, it's a fantastic way to get to know your own community meaning both uh, physically as well as socially. Another driver, Randy, was just looking for a steady income. I just, I love to drive and I needed a supplemental income. It's easy to just get in the car without knowing who your driver is, but we wanted to find out more about who's behind the wheel. The way I used to be a chef. I used to play classical guitar. This is a, a very demanding schedule, um, this job. Um, I do go, I'm... I'm into health, so um, I spend time at the gym, and uh, other than that, I mean, most of that fills up my time. That was Wayne, one of the Friday night drivers, and this is Dennis, a Friday morning driver. We moved here from Rochester because my daughter finished her uh, residency and fellowship at Strong Memorial. I'm a sports fanatic, so I watch a lot of sports. I'm a 30-year recovering alcoholic and addict. And I do take it upon myself at times to try to impart a little bit of wisdom. And uh, maybe you never know what something you might say might stick with somebody and make a difference. In but these life. drivers didn't just talk about themselves. All the drivers, like Margaret, told us what they've learned from who they're driving. It's about the story. People are put together by stories. Margaret said that she doesn't just get paid in fares. She's also paid in stories from her passengers. We're also serving the public at large with all their needs. Taxis are called upon by uh, 
the well-heeled and the well-educated as well as the very poor. And that's a very interesting perspective that you develop that way. Margaret wanted to share more of her stories with us, so she met with news director Peter Champelli in the WICB studio after our drive. In our cab drive, when you were driving me to the airport last week, you just said a bunch of interesting stories, first of all, just like your experiences. There was a student who uh, I picked up uh, at the hospital, and uh, he needed to go back to college. And in the 10-minute ride that followed, she told me that... Um, Basically, before she came to school, she was essentially homeless, living in her car, and her family was totally out of the picture. And she also told me who her advisor was, uh, which happens to be a friend of mine. And I felt it was important that I uh, contact my friend and let her know what was going on. And within the hour, support was available to this student. Margaret's not the only driver who's learned from her passengers. Both Dennis and Randy had similar experiences. I can learn something about what their experience has been, you know, what their life has been over the last several years. I just had a young man I picked up, works at one of the local restaurants, and um, as I was taking him there, he was telling me that uh, where he's going is near one of the old hospitals. So I learned about where the old hospital is up on South Quarry, which I never knew. I'm the driver I am today because of my passengers. It gives us a better outlook, you know, like people don't look at us like we're rushing to get rid of them. You know, we're helping them to enjoy the Ithaca and show them a little bit about it. Most of the shortcuts I've learned, I've learned from my passengers. I mean, they've taught me a lot of things about the city that I didn't know. And some of the stories have left a permanent spot in the driver's minds. I picked the Medicaid up when it was going out to, uh, towards Enfield. And I'd heard about him. My last name's Burlingame, and so was his. And we got to talking when we pulled in the driveway. I went to write down his name, and we found out that we was related. But uh, we, I never did pick him up again to find out how or anything. But... That was rather ironic. Over this past summer, ride-sharing was made legal in Ithaca. Wayne admits that the taxis do have their loyal customers, but business has certainly slowed down since this change. I think the, the college kids are used to using Uber wherever they're from, and so they just continued the habit when they came back into town here. So it's taken, um, it's taken a toll on our nights to some degree. Again, this is Margaret back with us in the WICB studio. So it's experiences like that that make you feel like you want a local driver. You want somebody who knows the community and the people in it. Despite the increase in competition, these taxi drivers still say that cabs offer personal connections that riders just can't get by ordering a car through apps like Uber and Lyft. For instance, when there's time, Dennis takes his customers on a mini tour of Ithaca, showing them the natural beauty of the local area. Like most of the drivers, they live in this area, you know, and they're part of this community. And, you know, we all can uh, benefit from that. Whereas if you have students, for instance, coming in, they're just doing uh, a job driving people around to make extra money, and they're only going to be here for a certain amount of time, and then they're moving on really can't establish any roots. You know, I love being a little uh, semi-professional tourist because I'm interested. Instead of staying on 13, let's go off and through Fall Creek. 
and I'll tell you about the Porch Fest that they have every year, which is fantastic. After our interview with her in the WICB studio, we got back on the road with Margaret. People of different big backgrounds don't easily mix. You have to make an effort. Um, because in Ithaca, we look after each other, right? For Sarah Herbakowitz, I'm Madison Fernandez, WICB News. We end this fall season's Best of Ithaca Now with a story from our show last week. Net neutrality is what makes the internet fair and open. It's what ensures that all content is treated equally by internet providers. This past Thursday, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, and going forward, the courts and Congress will decide the internet's fate. But one week before this vote, net neutrality supporters in Ithaca held a protest outside the Verizon store on South Meadow. Assistant News Director Hannah Bracinger visited this protest. If you're listening to this in the car, know that's not the sound of someone honking at you. It is the sound of cars honking in support of protesters who gathered outside the Verizon store in Ithaca this past Thursday. Their agenda? To showcase their support for net neutrality. But what exactly is net neutrality, and why is it suddenly in jeopardy? Net neutrality is basically what's existed since the birth of the internet. It allows you to access and post whatever you want, whenever you want, on the World Wide Web. It also prohibits internet service providers, like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, from speeding up, slowing down, or blocking any type of internet content. In a way, it's the 21st century form of freedom of speech. Back in 2015, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, reclassified broadband as a common carrier under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. In simpler terms, they reinforce net neutrality rules that keep the internet free and open. Then, this past spring, Trump's appointed FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, started making plans to terminate these net neutrality rules. In May, the FCC voted to let these plans move forward, and an official vote on Pai's proposal is less than a week away. Thursday's peaceful protest was one of just hundreds happening at Verizon stores across the country, all organized to speak out against Pai's proposal. I spoke to Leon Miller out, who helped organize Ithaca's protest. He explained to me that the reason they're happening, specifically at Verizon stores, is because... The current chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, who's put forth a plan to repeal net neutrality, was formerly a lawyer for Verizon. Verizon's not the only uh, company involved. All of the big ISPs like AT&T and Comcast and Spectrum, they're all interested in ending net neutrality so that they can uh, squeeze their customers for more money and so that the rich and powerful stakeholders will have another tool for silencing dissent and preventing people from organizing. While the protest was local, many protesters I spoke to feel that the issue is global and that it's a direct threat to U.S. democracy. I'm here because I think it's important that the net remain neutral and that everybody can use it regardless of their ability to pay. And it should really be a public utility and remain a public utility because otherwise when people start making money off of these things, it becomes very undemocratic. And I think the internet as it exists is a democratic institution and needs to remain that way.
That was Ithaca resident Larry Hirschberger. Another protester, Ira Rigua, agreed that the internet should continue to be a public resource. I think of it as like the commons, you know, like uh, commons should have common spaces and um, like resources like the air and water should basically be held by all people and the internet should be in the same, same place. I mean, a democracy depends on people being able to speak to each other. People who are against net neutrality claim that the government shouldn't be able to prevent huge businesses like Verizon and Comcast to engage in competition by putting each other in slow lanes. But many of the protesters voice that the issue of net neutrality serves as part of a cycle that's less about business and more about democracy. Once the internet is taken away, then so is the ability to organize. And thus, those who seek to silence the U.S. people remain in power. Net neutrality supporters also insisted that this is why it's so important for politicians who are against net neutrality to be kept from these positions of power. My name's Max Delapia. And you're running for Congress? I'm running for Congress to defeat Tom Reed in 2018. Max Delapia is running for Congress in New York's 23rd District. Delapia attended the protest to show his support for net neutrality. Internet neutrality is huge. They could deny us the right to go to a site. It's an issue of uh, free speech, really. They'll charge us more for going to certain sites, and if they don't like what a certain site is saying, and they're, say, conservative or liberal, they could prevent or, or reduce our access to that. Once it's gone, it's something that will be difficult to get back. I asked everyone I spoke to how they feel anyone interested in this matter can get involved. I think electing people to office who are going to stand up for net neutrality is really important. And our, our congressman from this area, Tom Reed, um, does not want to continue net neutrality. So I think um, we need somebody else in his place. And I think that's true nationwide. We need to start electing people to office who are going to stand up for democracy in the United States. Just being a presence on this street corner, a lot of people don't understand how what a slippery slope this is. So I think it's really important that we inform our friends and our neighbors. Call your congressmen, tell them that you support net neutrality, you want the Title II protections to continue to apply to the internet and that the internet is a, is a critical and, and basic utility and it's got to be regulated appropriately. Uh, our democracy relies increasingly on the internet for sharing information and organizing um, and I want my children to grow up with the ability to access whatever information uh, they, they want to learn about and not just what the big corporate interests want them to see. For WICB News, I'm Hannah Bracinger. So we're here in the WICB studio. Uh, this is our best of show. I'm joined with assistant news director Hannah Bracinger and assistant producer of Weekday Ithaca Now, Will Carlson. Hello, hello. Hi, cool. friends. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I just uh, basically wanted to, I guess, open up the, uh, the floor, I guess, the small studio, but uh, talking about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of how we put this show together every week. Uh, you just heard our best stories from the year. So I guess uh, we'll start with the one you just heard uh, on net neutrality. 
Hannah, I guess you want to just like give, if people are just now tuning in, do you want to give a quick recap about what that story is and talk about it? Yeah, so uh, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before that, I went to a protest and it was on South Meadow Street outside the Verizon store. And people were there basically protesting um, a proposal Ajit Pai put in to repeal net neutrality. Um, and this, this was just a week before... Um, this was voted on his proposal, um, and it actually was voted to repeal net neutrality. So um, I was basically just talking to people, asking them why they were at this protest, how they felt about net neutrality, um, and learning more about it for myself because I honestly did not know a whole lot about it until I went to this protest. Um, and I spoke to a congressman too. He's running against Tom Reed. And he shared me his his views on net neutrality and what he thinks. And it was just a really educational experience. And I learned a lot. And I hope the listeners learned a lot, too. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely very, like, last minute in terms of story planning. And I think some of our best stories, honestly, on Ithaca Now come, like, last minute. Because we do a lot of these, like, are planned ahead. Like, the cab drivers one, obviously, that was sort of, like, one that we thought of and wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But this one, like, our, we, I had seen in the news uh, that it was happening because it was a protest uh, just, like, at the Verizon store, which also that was happening all around the country is, like, different cities were holding those protests. Um, and, yeah, like, last minute you were just like, yeah, I'm, I'm available to go down and ended up being our best story definitely uh, of that week. Um, yeah, so I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these other stories. So, so yeah, the one you heard right before the net neutrality one, uh, so it's behind the wheel with Ithaca's cab drivers, uh, this was definitely a really fun one. Um, Will, you uh, you definitely helped produce some of that part. Do you want to talk a little bit about that cab driver story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, when uh, our correspondent Sarah Horbakowitz came up with the idea for it, I thought it was really interesting. It's just a story that no one had ever really come up with before. It was a new, interesting take on something that just a lot of people seem to overlook. I don't know how many people every day... Uh, take a taxi in either Ithaca or Tompkins County or even around the country, and how many people actually stop to think like, oh, maybe these people have interesting stories to talk about. So that angle was just, it made for a great story. And I know that um, there were a few hiccups in just trying to organize that because there were technical issues with the recording equipment. There was just some times where they just couldn't even get the interview and the few that they got just came together nicely. So there was a lot of logistical hoops that we had to jump through, but in the end, it panned out great. Yeah, so that was definitely a really cool story. Um, and and yeah, I agree definitely with what you said about uh, there being some technical issues. That's something that happens to us, I would say, every week there's something, even a little thing that goes <laughs> wrong, like if there's like a headphone jack that doesn't work. So uh, true. Yeah, that just delays our process uh, that the listeners uh, don't, don't really see uh, with the final product. Yeah, just like our recorders literally did not record some of the interviews. Um, that happened to me. Yeah. The net neutrality <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, technology will always fail when you give it an opportunity to fail, oh, when you yeah. use it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like the thing that kind of saved us too, though, uh, was just honestly like the interview, uh, the interviewees that were just like so open to sharing their story. And one like funny thing, one funny behind the scenes thing, uh, f- at least from my point of view on that story, was one of the uh, people that they interviewed I had a cab ride with her last year um, when she, like, took me, like, home from the airport or something. Uh, and, like, 
I we talked like we had a really good conversation in the cab. She studied at Ithaca College, and we talked like about anthropology and like journalism and stuff. Um, and we like exchanged emails like last year, and then cut to this year while that story is in production she drove me again to my airport for like thanksgiving break um and we like recognized each other immediately and then at the end of the cab ride i was like so we have some reporters doing a story on cab drivers like would you like be interested in being interviewed like i could like hop in the cab with you again and just ask you some questions and she was like oh i just drove them the other week like i am one of their interviewees (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was pretty awesome and then she ended up having like so many amazing stories that i was just like you should come to the studio and just tell even more so i mean that i just i thought that that was like very fun and it's crazy that like that like i think is a small enough town where that kind of stuff can happen and i think that's also why that story like worked out so well is because of like the size and general feel of ithaca which is nice that's an awesome story yeah so i guess uh if, if we're just moving on backwards um so an- another great story we had was that decarcerated tompkins county story um so I guess like uh, Will, were you involved in production with that at all, or do you like uh, have any comments about about like what what went on with that story? Yeah. So um, especially with decarcerate uh, Tompkins County, so there was a lot of script writing involved with that one, and I think that's something that a lot of people aren't instantly aware of is just how much pre-production goes into this, where people are sure there are the interviews you have to conduct and you have to talk with people and do your background research. But then there's actually writing the script and editing everything. I think it's fair to say that for every minute of content, there's at least an hour's worth of edits behind it. Especially true in the writing portion, and that's even before you step into a studio to start cutting a package. And there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes. I think one thing we've sort of done a lot of this year, just in general, I think we've had a lot of lengthy stories and that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just interesting to have this idea. And then you suddenly start acquiring all of this, all these interviews and all of this information. And our stories have grown so much like through this short period of production. Um, Like the Karen Bear story, that story was originally supposed to be like a little snippet, like five minutes and it ended up like a 10 minute story. And I think that's something that's really cool because I think it's given everybody a lot of practice. Yeah, I remember when uh, when I saw the script for that Karen Bear story. Uh, so, so that was a story you heard, like that was the second one of this episode uh, where we talked about the director of uh, the county's Office of Human Rights who was placed on unpaid leave. And that uh, office actually currently has a uh, interim director. Uh, so that, that still has not been settled, that uh, the lawsuit that we were talking about in that, epi- in that, uh, that, in that segment. Um, but yeah, when I saw the script that, that you gave to me, Hannah, and like that you and Bronte worked on, I was like, oh gosh, like 10 minutes, that's, that's a little, (laughs) it's a little long for a radio story. Um, but then I listened through, like I watched, I looked at all the interview clip, uh, clips and I listened through it and it just like really, it works. Um, and that's the fun thing is that when you get like a 10 minute radio story or like even a six minute, uh, which is all of the stories we played today were over six minutes, uh, when it works and like when, uh, when there's enough content, when you need to like talk about it for that long, it's really good and that's i think that that's like one of the most fulfilling parts of our of our job is like putting together these productions that just have so much like information you can like you just like build that story that really gets like every aspect of the the story in it i mean i guess uh what was your process like during that story in terms of like coming like like seeing how the story was developing and like your interviews and stuff well that story was actually interesting because i think originally 
me and Bronte, who did the story with me, we originally went to the legislative meeting and we had no idea what we were getting into. We had we were exploring the idea of doing a story focusing on surge, which is um, showing up for racial justice. Uh, racial advocacy group in Ithaca and we I went on their website and I was just looking for events they were hosting and I saw that they were having well the legislative meeting was occurring but they were sort of calling upon people to come to this legislative meeting to show support for Karen Bear and they released a public statement talking about uh, Karen Bear's removal and why she was removed and it just seemed really, really interesting. Um, so me and Bronte went to that meeting and we went inside and all of a sudden it just turned into this fascinating story. And all of these people were there to show their support for Karen. And they had so many interesting things to say. And then Karen was there and she had so many interesting things to say. And it was just, yeah, it, it was a really insightful uh I had never been to a meeting like that before, so it was sort of interesting just to see how they go down. And it was it was nice that people, anyone, could just go there and talk. Um, I think it was a really good a really good representation of what democracy is and what it can accomplish. Um, people showing their support for her. So awesome, yeah, yeah. And I guess like the last story that we played uh, today was definitely also a highlight. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was in the best of show. Uh, but it was in uh, our, I think, three-part series on a bunch of stuff that was going on at Cornell, especially in the beginning of this uh, in the semester. And I remember that being crazy because I mean, this is a behind-the-scenes thing, but there was uh, some like switching up we did with WSB News this year where we had more content, obviously, with Weekday Ethica Now, uh, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, but uh, but yeah, like as we were figuring out all these new things we were doing with the news department, there was this huge thing that was happening at Cornell where uh, all of these instances of racial discrimination uh, and hate coming out from uh, uh, ZSI fraternity. Um, uh, that was the first story that Christopher Morales uh, reported on. And he's our he's sort of like our Cornell correspondent for WICB News a little bit because he's currently a student there. Um, and he has like his feet on the ground uh, whenever stuff happens there. He always has like pictures and reports for us and stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we had a three part series that we talked to like community members. Like uh, I think the next week I talked to the director of the Multicultural Resource Center talking about like racism as a whole in america and how it how it can be like highlighted or like focused in on in specific ways in ithaca uh different things that can can come out in a college town uh with like these isolated uh uh, college communities um so that that was definitely a crazy part of the semester and uh some reporting that i think uh we're definitely like very proud of and that chris should be very proud of because that story was was very good um from from you know seeing that i think from from all of our perspectives that was awesome to have someone in the Cornell community that could get us that information for sure. Um, but yeah, like I was mentioning, uh, we did do some switching up uh, for WICB this year, which we're pretty excited about. So we had Weekday Ithaca Now going since basically September. Um, and Will, you've been the primary producer on Weekday uh, every single Tuesday and Thursday. So you must have done like, I don't know, what's what's like five months times four times two that's like 40 you've probably done like it's it's 40 i think 40 is the math um you've done like around probably like 30 to 40 weekday shows so that's really really awesome Uh, do you want to talk a little bit what about what weekday is so weekday is i suppose i've described it as like a bite-sized version of the regular sunday ithaca now so if you missed a story for sunday show like there are lots of stories that we worry people don't necessarily get to hear on the first chance. 
because, you know, people are doing things, they're out working, or maybe they're just not at a radio when the show is airing. So Weekday gives people the opportunity to tune in during the week to hear some of our more interesting stories again, some really interesting interviews. Um, I remember especially with the uh, Zeta Psi fraternity, that went on for weeks. It felt like every single day we had something new. It was it was almost like a scene like from all those movies, like all the president's men and stuff. Like we had new reports. We had uh, new sources seemingly every day. And that was fun because we could include breaking stuff in weekday because that was new. It was happening now. And it couldn't necessarily wait until Ithaca now. So it also helps if there's any breaking news, we can include that during the week, and then we can talk about it at length more on the uh, regular Sunday show. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that Weekday was a super like helpful addition, especially just for our workflow and uh, our ability to give news as fast as possible, but in a more in-depth way than those daily newscasts that everyone hears. Um, yeah, I guess, like, Hannah, what was some of the highlights uh, from, from your work this year, just, like, different things that you did or, I don't know, anything you saw on the station that you want to, like, highlight? So uh, it's interesting for me because I'm sort of coming from a journalism background, um, a print journalism background. So and I think a couple of the other new people to our team this year are also coming from that background. Um, So it's been interesting working with them. And it's funny because we'll write up an entire script and we're using all of these like metaphors and all of these like very wordy phrases. And Peter's just like, you got to cut that down because because it's like it doesn't work the same for radio. You can't use these like redundant words. Um, So that's just been something that's been interesting to get used to. I've discovered I really like that about radio is, you know, when it comes to print journalism, you're sort of focusing on this inverted pyramid. It's very structural. It's very uh, formulaic. Um, There's like a lot more rules is what I've like thought. Because obviously I I love radio, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. There are a lot more rules um, because so much of print journalism is focused on the internet and people and clickbait and people click on a link and they look at it for two seconds and then they're gone. So all the important information always has to be at the top. Um, Whereas radio, um, it's, you're able to paint a story in a way that you can't necessarily do with print journalism all the time. I'm not saying one's necessarily better over the other, but that's just something that's interesting I've noticed about radio is just this ability to set people right in the scene like that. Um, So I've really enjoyed, you know, doing that and getting to experience that this semester. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, that's, that's my favorite thing about, about working on the station is those getting to build those stories every week um, because it really does feel like we're building a story as we were writing this because it's all, it's all real stuff because we're getting interviews and we're pulling from our experience going to meetings and stuff. But really, we're like setting up the world of like like how the story is laid out. Um, but yeah, besides that, there's just like so many fun things that um, that that happen throughout the year that are like uh, just really interesting, like stuff that happens in the studio that just really uh, is scary at the time, but like funny to look back on. Like once we were broadcasting in Ithaca now, and I don't know if you either of you were there, but um, one of those EAS tests that are like. like one of those things for radio that started playing in the studio but it didn't take over the broadcast like they're supposed to it was just playing like behind my head oh my god and like salisa our host was about to go live and so like i couldn't go live because like it was playing in a speaker in the studio that wasn't our main speaker so like it would have broadcast that but like as a background noise so anyway 
that was a I, I freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, but it ended up sounding fine. But like that's I, I think that that's probably something that like the listener doesn't really uh, necessarily like sees that we're definitely freaking out sometimes because it's a live production. A lot of oh, stuff yeah. is is uh, is kind of strange. Um, but yeah, like other times it goes a lot uh, a lot better in terms of live production. So uh, one of those times I think was inauguration of President Coyado. That was definitely some one time when we went into a live production situation thinking that the worst would happen because we had a lot of evidence that the worst could happen because we didn't really have a functioning stream. Uh, we didn't have as much, I guess, like way to plan ahead as we would like. Uh, but really, it went pretty well. I mean, Will, do you want to talk about that? You were like the main host of that of that show. Oh, stop. <laughs> so we now. Well, the one thing I remember uh, very distinctly about doing uh, President Collado's inauguration was about 15 minutes before we were supposed to go on. You were telling me how we were going to get our live event feed from I forget which particular source. And then we found out five minutes later that it just wasn't happening. So we kind of had to plan, you know, think on our feet there for a moment and just say, okay, so one of our three potential channels just decided not to show up. So we had to just mix and match different things and make it work. And that was incredibly nerve wracking. Um, And yeah, it's kind of like the things you were saying earlier, how you don't necessarily see that or even hear that, but when we're not necessarily talking, or even when we are talking on air, there's a bunch of other things going on in the studio. You know, we're we're queuing up sound bites. We're getting stories prepped for um, when we were peppering in interviews, like with that uh, Dean Gajewski story. And there's just so much you don't see in radio. And I don't know, there's a part of me that really enjoys that, because if you do your job right, nobody really knows. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think we're about to uh, to hit our limit. But any any closing words from you guys about just how this year in radio went? Um, I don't think so. But you guys should tune in to us at the end of January. We'll be back reporting more news. So awesome. Well, yeah. For for WICB News, I'm Peter Champelli. I'm Will Carlson. And I'm Hannah Bracinger. Thanks so much for listening. That's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, subscribe to us on the iTunes Podcast Store. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, our station manager, Alex Bredekin, and our correspondents, Christopher Morales, Hannah Bracinger, Bronte Cook, Taylor Milliken, Bridget Bright, Madison Fernandez, and Sarah Herbakowitz. All of the music from our show comes from Dr. Dundiff, hailing from my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback for the show? Take our survey at wicb.org slash feedback. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful week. I'm Peter Champelli and have a happy holidays from Ithaca Now on WICB. WICB.